our measure of whether or not sex has been had is very rarely how much pleasure or authenticity or playfulness or emotional intensity was experienced. Hello, welcome back to Relatable Content. I am recording to you live from the comfort of my own home. And I absolutely love to spend time at home now that I've actually gone full-time freelance. And one of the benefits of being freelancer or a freelancer is the ability to just do things the way I want to do it. And one of these um, opportunities arose when I decided to go visit an ex-client. And whilst I was sitting um, in the office space of the client, a lady walked in with a poster. Now, this poster had some weird information on, I take it, because the secretary didn't have a response And when the uh, person decided to leave, I decided to get up and go look at the poster. So the poster read the Better Sex Workshop series with Ruth Elliott, an opportunity to explore sex and pleasure in a sex-positive, inclusive and non-judgmental space. I jumped up with excitement because first I thought, wow, I have never had the opportunity to be in a non-judgmental space. And two, I wanted to explore what trauma meant in sexual um, circumstances, especially given the fact that I worked at a non-profit organization that based um, a lot of services off trauma in the sexual realm. And to my surprise, I found out that Ruth Elliott, which is the guest of today's show, used to work at rape crisis and she worked at rape crisis centers in the UK. So with great excitement, I sat down with Ruth recently to discuss her better sex workshops and discover what she is about and who she is, and especially what brings her to Cape Town. Here's a content warning for the episode. We're going to be talking about sexual violence of different forms, um, violations of consent and coercion and force. And so if you are particularly sensitive to conversations around Uh, sexual violation and sexual trauma be mindful of that before you before you listen secondly um, there's a content warning around my usage of the term colored to describe members of my family and uh, community in South Africa Um, for those listening from outside of South Africa the term colored Um, is used here not as a derogatory racial slur, but just as a descriptor for a particular racial community um, of which my family are a part. Um, I understand that to UK audiences, describing people as coloured is unbearably racist. um, And so I would want to say that when I use that term, I'm using it within the South African context of... I'm using it within the South African context where it is not um, a slur, um, but something that people proudly identify as themselves and that doesn't carry the kind of connotations that it does outside outside of this context. Our measure of whether or not sex has been had is very rarely how much pleasure or authenticity or 
playfulness or emotional intensity was experienced. Ruth Elliot. Hello. Um, where are you from? Who are you? What brought you to Cape Town? Tell me something. Tell me about you. Oh my god. Um, well, I'm in Cape Town because uh, my maternal family is here. Um, and it's a city I love. I came to a lot as a child uh, to see my grandparents and cousins and aunties. And I came here from London, which is where I spent most of my time. Um, and I currently live in, in Scotland, up in Edinburgh. And I work as a sex and relationships educator. That's an interesting one. I think so, yeah. I get positive responses when I say that. I think people um, imagine it's... It's a very sexy thing to be doing, mm-hmm. um, which it rarely is that. It's more focused on sexual violence prevention stuff and promoting the skills needed to have as consensual and as pleasurable and as communicative um, sexual relationships as possible. Yeah, awesome. And mm. do you use that um, introduction when you introduce yourself to people? Like, ask, what do you do? And Introduction of myself sort of changes a bit. Mm. I sort of try different things depending on who I'm talking to or if I'm trying to get out something out of it because like sometimes it's most relevant to talk about the rape crisis sexual violence activism side of it and sometimes um, accentuating the pleasure centering queer focus element Mm -hmm. Um, and then sometimes the mental health stuff because a lot of the training that I offer is around psychoeducation around trauma and trauma-informed practice, which is stuff that I learned as a rape crisis worker um, and that I trained in as a training worker with them. And so that very, you know, that takes very different boxes. And so how I kind of build myself will depend on if I have an agenda for that conversation. The all-encompassing version and the, the thing that's like on, on my website and stuff is that I, so I say that I'm a, sex educator in uh, pleasure-centred, queer, inclusive and trauma-informed relationships and sex education. Wow. I think that's, that's a lot. That's the line. It's a bit of a yeah. mouthful, though. I don't, I don't know. We might need to revise it. It doesn't matter, though. I think it doesn't need to. Uh, you don't have to have a set title anyway because you're doing so much. You can be one thing to one <laughs> person and another thing to another. And sometimes your audience, like you said, you have to know your audience. Sometimes yeah. you don't even know or want to hear the word sex in it, so you have to be like, I'm a facilitator in... Relationships education. Does that happen? Of course, yeah. especially when I used to teach in schools. Yes. You don't go to a school and say, I want to teach your kids about pleasure. You say, I'm going to teach your children about how they can keep themselves safe. Yes. And about consent. What was the course called? Or your role at the school, actually? Um, it was. I didn't have a role at a specific school, but I was a worked with a charity that provided sex education in schools, and so the school would do like ad hoc lessons on different things. Um, but the way we kind of wrangled it was, it wasn't. It seems kind of sly because everyone's so prudish, but it wasn't disingenuous. Our philosophy um, that I fully endorse is that consent education has to come from a like foundation of centering pleasure because people have sex most of the time in order to experience pleasure and intimacy with the person they're having sex with. Um, And so a a crucial tool to achieve that end is to be consensual, that being the framing of it, as opposed to like, this is how to avoid assault. 
you go like, so what are you trying to get out of this encounter? And how best can you achieve that? And in so doing, you avoid not just assault, but like the more difficult to pinpoint coercive, manipulative, uncomfortable, pressured, like territory. That's so many of us had to learn through all culture to actually find out what sex is. Yeah, very few people have had a fully consensual sexual history. Um, And very, very few people, if anyone has had a purely pleasurable sexual history. And I think um, a lot of the activism and conversations within um, feminism and within the sexual violence sector are fully centered around violence prevention and supporting survivors of violence, which is obviously crucial work and it's work I'm involved in. Um, But I think a lot of the prevention approach ignores why people are having sex. They just kind of go straight in with talking about effects of violence and talking about how you can't have had even a pint of beer because then your capacity is compromised and you can't consent and and then you have 15-year-olds or you have... 25 year olds who have 45 year olds saying now I've definitely had drunk sex and it was great like yeah. you and then you've just kind of lost trust and relatability and you're not acknowledging and speaking to the fact that people very rarely in our work are having sex only to procreate yes <laughs> it's and that's especially it, now in the time we live in quite it's like people have people having sex because they want to have fun, they want to experience like ecstasy and pleasure, or they want to experience connection mm-hmm. with the person having sex, but they want to get off. And very often they do not have the tools, both in terms of self-reflection and introspection, or communication and awareness of a partner to, to get there. Yeah. Very often they're having boring or terrible or coercive or crap or routinous Just sex. Of movies I've seen. Oh, dear. well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> very very rarely see represented sex that i would say is enviable um (laughs) it's mostly terrible or just so so unrealistic as to be kind of irrelevant to the conversation it's like you where the narrative we're peddled is that if you have a romantic attraction towards someone and they have a romantic attraction towards you if you've fallen in love then all that love alone is power enough to fuel this like instantaneous, like intuitive, orgasmic, like life altering sort of mess on the floor sex. And then people expect that when they have sex with someone who they fancy. And then it's obviously like awkward and fumbling and terrible and nothing fits right. And there's everyone loses erections and everyone's self-conscious about what their body's doing or looks like or smells like or tastes like and and then it's very hard to break out of of that without just kind of following the script that we have and that's the title of the first workshop and the series of workshops that I do for adult sex education um, is this idea that because navigating sex really authentically and honestly and kind of being very reflective on exactly what you want and need and where your boundaries lie and communicating them with another person that's just really hard and vulnerable so what we tend to do is we default to the sexual script that we're we're taught and um, we're exposed to which is a certain idea of what sex constitutes and when you have it and how and with whom and that there's this formula where you go you might like make out a bit and then you might do some hand stuff and then you might do some oral stuff maybe and then your piv penis and vagina 
until the person with the penis ejaculates and then that's the sex. Yeah. Not inclusive of anything else or anyone else. No, I mean, it's just that's 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 our blueprint. That's the kind of I call it like the skeleton of the script of the scripts. And there are variations on, on that. Yeah. Sometimes um the foreplay in air quotes you can't see because it's a podcast but like the so-called foreplay um or the bases that proceed going to final base to like the penetration with a penis of a vagina it's like there are certain give and take with something so maybe it's still sex it's still on our script if it's anal sex and to men or maybe if um what else what might be considered sex? I don't like different different like oral sex. Some people would say that kind of counts as is part of the golden circle of sexual behaviour that you could um, aspire to like achieve with a partner to reach a level of intimacy or reach a level of experience yeah. or whatever. But our measure of whether or not sex has been had is very rarely how much pleasure or authenticity mm-hmm. or playfulness or emotional intensity was experienced. That's something so vital that we need to consider pleasure. But I, I was having a conversation with someone, what we learned, because we didn't learn a lot growing up from our parents, for example, in my mm. family, I learned a lot from <coughs> school. And it had nothing to do with pleasure. And a man, a male-identifying person, said that, you know, at the end of the day, whatever I experience as pleasurable with my partner, it is up to us to decide what um, we like and dislike, and therefore the communication between us is mm. the only thing that's important. And again, if I'm committing this intimate act with this person, mm-hmm. they need to just communicate if that's pleasurable or not. And that's his final addition to talking about pleasure. Like well, I would a, like, I, I struggle to find someone who disagrees with that in yeah. the sense that what you just said, like, I'm going to like do something and my partner needs to just communicate whether or not that's pleasurable. Yeah. But that just communicate is what every sex advice column available pretty much will say is that if you want to maximise the amount of pleasure that you have, you want to have better sex, you just communicate more. Yeah. But what the advice column doesn't say is what to communicate and how. And what people experience is they get completely tongue-tied at the first stop because first they go as soon as you put on the spot where you actually have to reflect what do I want like what do I want out of this encounter what do I enjoy what do I like what feels good people the most common response to that is I have no idea I just don't know and that's not I'm not saying oh if you just wank more then that will solve it I mean really not not knowing how to even explore your own sexuality your own fantasies your own desires in a way that might answer that question and then the second hurdle is not only to kind of communicate that with yourself, but then to communicate to someone else is really difficult. You go, I'm going to communicate to my partner what I've, I've newly discovered I really want, or I think I might want, but I don't know yet because we haven't tried it, but what, where am I, where's my body, where am my imagination going? And you go, okay, well, I could communicate to my partner, but what if, what if it's a shameful thing? What if it's something that you think is gross or weird or unusual or like off script in some way? And you go, my partner might think I'm gross or weird or they might reject me. And a lot of people find the notion of rejection terrifying. Mm-hmm. What if my partner goes, Ugh, I don't want to do that. Or I think I want to have sex with you less overall because you've even suggested that we do that. And 
then you go, oh, I, don't, I can't possibly, I, this, my relationship, we, you know, this is another narrative we have, is that a relationship rests on the health of the sex you have. And so if you're going to start rocking that boat by suggesting things that you haven't already been doing, that feels scary. Another thing is like, what if your partner says, oh yeah, I'd love to. And then you hate it. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I'm going to change my mind. And we go, no, but you said you liked it. And then we just have such a f- sort of facile um, conception of like how desire can function and that it's so fluid and that it's so changeable and um, multifaceted. You can simultaneously really enjoy and really hate something at the same time. Yeah, I feeling shame. Without feeling shame, but far more often with feeling like a lot of shame. Like yeah. people, and, and it's not it's not fit for purpose for people to tell others to just, no, you shouldn't feel shame. Like you're too feminist and your queer theory is too on point and you're too sex positive to feel any shame about sex. You need to just embrace it all. And you go, oh, but it's so hard to do that because I authentically feel embarrassment or guilt or confusion and that's fine. And there's a lot of like the idea that sex positivity means embracing everything that comes into your like sexuality and that you should feel bad if you can't embrace it or if you're struggling to embrace it that in itself becomes really judgmental yeah so a lot of the work is in telling people like everyone has this massive con- contradicting emotion everyone has a lot of difficulty in articulating that to another person and that's okay because it's really hard yeah. and that cultivating openness and curiosity and practicing non-judgment that's not something that will come easily like you have to invest energy and time and commitment into going I'm not gonna cast judgment on other on on the sex that I have or the sex that other people has and that my barometer is going to be pleasure experienced rather than how much it conforms to my idea of what's normal or what's acceptable that's such a good point and I just wanted to ask you this because I know people that are in, in heterosexual relationships that mm. actually are um, married and they find it hard to explore the topic of pleasurable sex mm-hmm. because you know they they grew, they think that pleasure is something that you know that's what my husband gives me or that's what my partner mm. gives me mm. and if you understand why it's because you know you're not taught to look at yourself you're not taught to touch yourself you're taught that that's my partner's responsibility. So <laughs> they're <I'm> like <laughs> orgasm monkey in the corner. Yes. They should intuit exactly what you want. And if exactly. they can't, it's a failing of theirs. Exactly. And yeah. un- understandable that why they think that way, if they've only been taught to think that way. Yeah. You know? So if, would you, what would you suggest to couples in that situation? Like they don't know their personal bodies because they are taught to think that the, their partner is the one that will pleasure them. Well, if uh, in the situation that they're that's the context and they're not happy with it, yeah, because some yeah. it's not beyond the realm of possibility that people would be like comfortable in yeah. that setup. And who who am I to judge them? Mm-hmm. Um, for people who are dissatisfied, I think as you say, reclaiming your own body and sexuality as your own and not as the property of a partner is a pretty good baseline um that there's a lot of um people place a lot of expectation on their partners to give them stuff that they want um and that they feel entitled to and and this is something that happens a lot like we were were talking about activist feminist 
sex politics and something that I hear sometimes from women and femmes is this notion that their male partners enjoy so much male privilege in broader society that they kind of owe it to them to like go down for ages or that like mm-hmm. there's this sense of entitlement to um sexual like labor from male partners because they're just like swimming around in male privilege and so they should like put in some time like between your legs like it's kind of really sort of sassy kind of slightly aggressive notion that there's this sense of of this is due you know like you you put in the time now male and i think i mean it I, I'm sympathetic to where that comes from emotionally. This idea that, like, you're burnt out to a crisp and you're experiencing misogyny on a micro and macro scale ad nauseum and you're living under capitalism like the rest of us and you're really tired and you want someone to go down on you for an hour and a half and your male partner is the only one who might do that, so you're going to say that he definitely should. And I was sympathetic to that being a desire, but that attitude that your partner owes you pleasure, um, I think is quite a toxic one. Not only because I think it's uh, very disempowering for the individual, because you go, if if you think that they're the route to pleasure, then you're you're losing touch with how much you can pleasure yourself. Um, But also it creates huge amounts of performance anxiety and pressure um, on your partner. And they probably have the same expectations of you. And then we have this like reciprocal thing where everyone feels this expectation yes. to, to put out and to give things that we may they probably haven't had a full-bodied conversation about how comfortable they are, what their boundaries are. Like, how much of it is a tit-for-tat exchange? Like, I'm going to do this for you, and the kind of reason why I'm doing that for you is because in the back of my head I'm thinking that later you'll do something kind of similar to me. And expectation. No yeah, it's that giving to get is yes. a really common dynamic, which yeah. feels kind of sticky and not in a, not good sticky, <laughs> like <laughs> bad <laughs> sticky, you know? But it, it stems from the conversation, actually, we were having earlier about um, being patient and calm, and mm. we also need to remember that so long certain uh, people i.e. males in this example would not I don't want to say brainwashed but they've been watching things and learning about how this was watching things so coy things you know (laughs) video games (laughs) Uh, but things and what they were watching is completely the way they think their lives Mm. are going to turn out and we didn't do that or at least I didn't do that growing up I wasn't focused on all the build up to having sex with someone or the thought about sex all the time like that Mm. just wasn't in my mind so I know that I need to be patient with the fact that I need to be more expressive with what I want and not Mm. blame the person for not giving it back to me yeah I think a really tragic um side effect of how like feminism's focus on sexual violence is this uh sense of male sexuality is this force of violence and threat before anything else I think because so much of of masculine sexuality is um socially conditioned to be entitled and um aggressive that is very much the case but it's um not the whole story Mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of shame and confusion and discomfort around 
healthy expression of sexual desire from masculine people. It baffles me every time I have a conversation with someone about sex and relationships education and age appropriateness and how how can we talk to children about sex without sexualizing them and like is it appropriate to talk to kids of certain ages about sexual things and um and you go well in the UK the on average a kid has seen porn online porn by the age of nine and this is not porn that the nine-year-old has paid for this is not super queer inclusive body positive feminist porn that this said nine-year-old has been exposed to that's terribly like wholesome and lovely and sexy it's just they've typed sex into google and they've really found themselves in Pornhub. um and this, so that's kind of where the sex education begins. And if you're not actively searching for pornographic content online, you're still watching TV and watching films and exposed to the music industry and exposed and to online advertising and video games. And none of these sources um, produce uh, understanding of consent and understanding of reciprocity of pleasure and understanding that being sexy doesn't mean these very particular, very narrow, very unattainable standards of, of desirability like no one's a, no one's a kind of equipped to navigate sex with people um very well and then they're told that it's their fault very often like people there's this infuriating campaign at the university i attended um sort of five years ago that was in edinburgh and it was like consent it's simple like consent it's black and white Full stop. Yeah. And I was like, it's, it's definitely not. <laughs> you're in a relationship with someone, you're the girlfriend, and you think that because they're your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whoever, because they're your partner, the sexual consent is implicit because you're in a relationship and you were taught and you are under your, your ideology on the world is that when you're in a relationship with someone, you want to have sex with them because otherwise you wouldn't be in a relationship. Um, and then you feel kind of horny and so you want to have sex and so you approach your partner and if they say no you're like oh that's fine like if they're allowed to say no but you're kind of a bit pissed about it you're not not pissed but a bit peeved maybe you're just a little bit irritable because you're feeling really sexually frustrated and then your partner got all prudish on you so you're like can't like have sex and so you're kind of frustrated and annoyed and for your partner their experience of this is oh he just didn't want to have sex and then they just kind of came along and wanted sex and then now he's pissed off and this has happened before mm. and now we've got this pattern where oh, if I don't say yes to having sex, then they might get irritable and grumpy and less cuddly and a bit more cold and distant. And I don't want that, so I'm going to have sex with them. And you go, is that coercion? Yeah. Does that fall under a bracket? Or is that miscommunication? And who's, who's at fault? Is anyone at fault? Is there blame to be assigned meaningfully, even if there's no malicious intent? And it's so common for people to experience what would be considered legally sexual violence and more importantly what is felt by the survivor as a violation but where the perpetrator has no clue what's going on and this is why there's so much confusion in response to me too and in response to allegations where people are so terrified that they might be accused of something that they didn't mean to do and they're completely baffled that people that like the women's movement can come back and say intention doesn't matter yeah. and they go but but all I have is my intent. Yeah. And I'm sympathetic to that. It is all that you have. If you intend to not cause any harm and you're just going about your life and you unwittingly cause a lot of harm, I think what 
needs answering is how could you reach the age of whatever be having sex with people and you still don't know how to gauge body language how to gauge consent you still you know aren't sensitive to these things and this is for the i'm not talking about people who will willfully transgress yeah. boundaries i'm not talking about the malicious <laughs> deliberate non-consensual behavior which is violent and which i'm not i'm not talking about in this case i'm talking about people who if they knew that they were doing something that was causing harm they would stop yeah. or they wouldn't do it at all they wouldn't have done it in the first place people who'd be horrified to think that they had done anything wrong you know the guys who He's saying, oh, like, I'm a feminist, I love my sister, like, yeah. that kind of bro. <laughs> and you, you go, like, some of, those. of course, everyone knows some of those, everyone knows loads of those, <laughs> because we don't actually live in, like, tiny femme communes of lesbians, like, in the mountains, so we all know those people who are really well-meaning and really kind mm. and love gender equality and also transgress lines of consent and are coercive because... They think that flirtation is... They don't know. And why should... like Not why should they know. I don't want to sound like an apologist here. I'm aware that I could be construed as such. But like I think that just like... like We talk about sexual violence as a systemic issue. And I think where the systemic issue is, is not with the solidarity that's possible amongst survivors, though that's obviously there, because you go, you're not alone, because there are literally hundreds of thousands of you survivor of a violation when you say survivor though just be um could you just explain what the definition of survivor is to you because uh, people use the word victim and mm -hmm. um, we have to be uh, working for aggressors have to be very clear as to why a person is a survivor can you explain the difference between a victim and a survivor um so i use the word survivor to mean anyone who has experienced um sex that they felt to be violating um, and un unconsented to. So if you have felt coerced or manipulated or pressured or forced into any sexual contact, whether it's penetrative or not, um, I would understand your experience to be one of surviving uh, a violation. Um, and I use the term survivor as opposed to victim because of the connotations of agency, resilience, um, autonomy, overcoming that we associate with surviving something. And I want to kind of distance survivorship from the stigma that's attached to victimhood, where people hear the word victim and very often associate it with passivity yeah, and with shame. shame. Exactly. And whilst I think the term survivor is... Um, yeah, it carries less stigma, and this is in the context of there being huge shame around experiencing sexual violence. People are very reluctant to admit that it, that is what's happened to them, and very much more reluctant to disclose that that's what's happened to them because of the association of its sexual violence with being guilty yourself of something, of having led it on in some way, of having asked for it, of having been being kind of contaminated in some regard, fear of being disbelieved, like the reasons that it's such a difficult um, kind of experience, one of the reasons it's such a difficult experience is the aftermath of 
how it how you're treated differently as a survivor from your friends from your family from support services that might be available to you and so that's kind of why I would buy into that um, kind of language thing to use survivor as opposed to victim. So why did you start the Better Sex Workshops and why in Cape Town? Sexual violence needs to be prevented um, and one way of preventing sexual violence is through education. Um, Education about sex, be it um, a kind of reframing of how we relate to sex as sexual individuals ourselves and also how we treat sex as something socially like how we talk about it how we represent it and so forth um and i think that we have such a an aggressive and limited and um dangerous narrative around sex in in popular culture that countering it with education um like these workshops is really crucial for preventing violence. A key part of that is, um, I suppose, there would be three like elements that I think are specific to these workshops that I've very like mindfully centred. One's pleasure, and I think we've spoken about this already, the importance of, of centering pleasure in, in prevention narratives. Um, and also, not just centering pleasure to prevent anything bad, but also because it so fun and it's so wonderful and it's so magical and it's so delicious or at least it can be it being sexuality and sexual contact it's this medium through which it's possible to experience so much joy mm-hmm. and that that's a good thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and so challenging the notion that that's indulgent and shameful and weird and gross and bad and pointless is in itself I think quite powerful mm-hmm. the other one is um, queer inclusivity so so much conversation about sex is still bafflingly um, around piving, penis and vagina-ing, or variations of, like, cis-gendered heterosexual encounters. And so acknowledging that the whole realm of sex in terms of pleasure, in navigating relationships, communicating about sex, and coercing, manipulating, violating, forcing, all of this exists within all queer spaces as well Mm -hmm. and uh, it's a really scary idea that sexual violence is exclusively the remit of heterosexual relationships because that feeds into how we fail queer survivors and also how we erase queer perpetrators from the narrative and that is is dangerous and the third thing is about accessibility and this is where i fear that i haven't um succeeded anywhere near as much as I'd like, but I want to rupture the idea that these conversations are for educated, middle-class, cisgendered, straight women in their 20s. Like, that is not what I want. The idea that sexual violence is a women's issue and the idea that sex ed is either something that would be good to have in schools or it's something that, like, women who have, like have like clitoris shaped necklaces talk about with their friends like in this this super way it's like so infuriating it's like we need to have this outside of this like very small bubble of people who are already aware and agree Mm -hmm. that sexual pleasure is an important issue you know Uh, if anyone knows and is listening right now and has a space to share and have you facilitate in a workshop please do contact 
Oh my god, yes, definitely. Anywhere I deliver a workshop, I also book out a neighbouring space that's then the chill zone for people to go to if they feel overwhelmed or triggered or uncomfortable and just want to chill out. There's like a designated area specifically for that and generally like my spiel at the beginning of any workshop is that I'd take it as a compliment to my facilitation skill Mm -hmm. if people just leave because Mm -hmm. then I know that they didn't feel compelled to stay out of politeness or loyalty which is something that I would hate Um, but yeah this idea that access is about much more than a ramp Mm -hmm. um, but is about really being um, proactive about thinking of what's going to make it harder for someone to come and how do I make it easier I think I my hope obviously is as someone who's created the workshops there are four or five in a series on different topics and I think um, from from how I created it and also from the experience of those who've been to the whole series before they kind of augment each other week on week and get more dense and more interesting not more interesting but they like kind of the topics uh, enrich one another. And so the understanding and knowledge you have at the end of attending all of them is definitely kind of greater and richer. But that is only worth it if you're able to be embodied and present and interested and comfortable for all of them. You know, it's like, there's no, you're not going to learn if you're feeling, you know, triggered to high heaven and just want to go home. Yes. (laughs) Definitely just go home. Walk on. It's Uh, so fine. How much are the tickets? It's a sliding scale ticketing system for that reason of accessibility that I was just talking about. So the tickets range for each workshop from free scholarship places where they don't cost anything at all through 200 rand, 400 rand and 600 rand. The workshops are about four and a half, five hours long. And um, the reason why I do a sliding scale and, and why that where you fit on that scale is about self-identification so I don't say what you know what job do you have therefore I'm going to decide what your disposable income is it's like where what you feel like you can comfortably afford to spend is what I would ask you to spend for the sake of this being sustainable work for me but I don't want anyone to not come as a result of money I'm able um, like in the privileged position that I can offer these workshops for free or for a, re- a very reduced rate for anybody who requires that in order for it to be accessible to them. What importance do you think we should place on having spaces that are not judgmental? Well, f- first of all, I'd say the necessity or the, the need for a non-judgmental space is extends to everyone, not just women. Yeah. Um, very much so I think I think it's necessary because it's unusual because most spaces are quite judgmental there are very few spaces where you could say what did you do last night like oh I had sex with my boyfriend how was it oh yeah it was fun he um, tied me up and then pretended to be a dog Mm -hmm. and I thought it was great yeah, and just openly talk about that. That kind of comment is, it would make people laugh, yeah. or would make people think you're weird. Mm. And that is not because that you you'd communicated that the encounter wasn't really fun, really pleasurable, really consensual. It's just because it's not script. It's not on the script, right? We think you're pretending to be a dog is weird. Tied, so some 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 communities your partner tied you up. Weird. You probably experienced his abuse as a child, or, <laughs> or they did. Um, pretending to be a dog, 
fucking weird. What are you doing? You should probably seek some therapeutic intervention. Talking about it openly, not doing that, but then doing it in the privacy of your own home and never mentioning it. Oh, you're an you're attention seeking exhibitionist type. Shit, you know, like so there's so much judgment. There's so, yeah. and this is a I'm kind of using this example deliberately because it is um, because it's slightly kinkier and slightly further out than than what people are used to hearing about. But I think if you could talk about your sexual preferences or history without the laughter not that laughter is bad but like without when the laughter is stemming from embarrassment yeah. or from shame yeah. then it's quite telling um no, and like, I, I laugh because and your ex- your example was just on point uh, yeah it, quite but like i think people experience that all the time for things that are kind of less obviously you know out of of the ordinary yeah. um and I think that that can be, it's like a wound of a thousand cuts. Like you just get used to feeling slightly judged about what you want and like. And the damaging thing is when that's an internal process. And so when I say that it's a non-judgmental space, I'm kind of chatting out my ass because that's of course something that I cannot guarantee or yeah. facilitate mm-hmm. because I have not become like a Buddhist monk of non-judgment and I'm guessing neither has any of the other attendees of any workshop I will ever provide. <laughs> so when I say non-judgmental, it's less that there will be no judgment in this space and more by coming into this space, you're agreeing to be mindful about your instincts towards judgment and to censor them yeah. appropriately for the sake of the group. And so one of the first activities that I do in the sexual script workshop, defining what sex is by looking at all of these scenarios of lots of different sexual acts and determining whether or not you think they count as sex, or whether or not you think that if someone were to engage in that activity, they would still be a virgin, again, in, in inverted commas. Um, and this is the first activity that we do, and it's really sexually explicit, and there's loads, there like 40 different scenarios of like, oh, somebody licks and sucks their partner's testicles, or somebody rubs their penis in between their partner's feet until they ejaculate, or something like that. There are like 40 of them. And the point is not f- to kind of be gratuitously detailed for fun, and it's not to titillate at all. It's just to kind of puncture the balloon of euphemism and vagueness and awkwardness by going right here's everything I can think of that's explicit and involves all the different body parts and all of the different fluids and all of the different dynamics from partnerships to stranger sex to transactional sex to like just put it all on the table mm-hmm. and to do it and, and try and I my success I find as a facilitator is whether or not I successfully have the group talking about these things and when the laughter dies down and people just become a bit more earnest and do yeah. the activity. And when people don't go, ugh, or don't go, that's weird, or don't don't kind of express judgment. Yeah. Um, and acknowledging that most of the stuff in those scenarios, or maybe not most, but a proportion of it, will be most likely things that the attendees either haven't thought of or have thought of with con- confusion or contempt or would never engage in themselves and talking about that in a kind of neutral way it's an icebreaker right yeah yeah literally those because as you know everyone knows you can if you can think back to your first camp (laughs) you need an icebreaker camp (laughs) oh i I grew up in london we didn't do that shit (laughs) i never went to camp (laughs) as a child no i not at all it's i do i'm sad about it because everyone speaks very fondly of their experience of camp 
But I know I spent my summers in urban jungle of London. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, to relate to people who have been on camps, uh-huh. you just start by uh, playing an icebreaker. And yeah. that icebreaker, as we all know, relaxes us. We get more comfortable with the people around us. And now we're ready to actually allow more conversation and deeper thought into the next phase. Oh, they're crucial. But what I've found when, in workshops that I've attended as a... As a like a part, I'm not facilitating it, I just attended it. Often icebreakers are just weird games at mm-hmm. the beginning that don't really break the ice. They're just like a fun... Like, I've done one where you go around and you say, like, name something about yourself. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh my God, I need to say something that's interesting and cool, but not too attention-seeking seeming. And I don't yeah. want to seem like I'm a, a, a an idiot. <laughs> and then everyone's so anxious about saying something about themselves that is the right level of interesting, but not too whatever. And then we go, okay, now, now we'll do the workshop. It's like, yeah. this isn't broken any ice. It's yeah. just made everyone feel more self-conscious. Yeah. It's like very crucial to make it actually an activity that shifts people from feeling self-conscious and um, introspective to relaxed and curious and mindful. And like that, yeah. I feel like, has been lost in a lot of icebreakers where it's not really icebreakers. But um, at university, like at the beginning of semesters, like tutorials, where it's like, oh God, what are we going to have to do? And it's yeah. like, name like two truths and a lie. <laughs> it's like, oh no. We should write a guideline on icebreakers to play. <laughs> Depending on your audience. Yeah, depending on the other one. No, I say this like I've got loads of really good icebreakers on my sleeve. It's something I struggle with loads. It's <laughs> trying to um, think of a good icebreaker. We need a pool of, of games that we can mm. pull out of and we can all share so we don't get into this yeah. situation. I know, I remember one that's like, oh, yeah, a really good way to get the group like communicating and whatever is they need to like arrange themselves in order of height. Yes. It's like... I've been involved in groups where you had to do that, and it definitely serves no such purpose. I don't feel like a renewed like kinship, team, yeah. matey dynamic. Uh, maybe as a child, that's different. A sex workshop. Yeah. No one knows what they've got themselves into. Yes, and you don't like. We don't even know so much about ourselves, but your workshop is a place to um, explore that. Why South Africa? Did I ask you that? Um, no, so I you did ask me, and I just didn't answer. I got carried away with my own. <laughs> wittering in Cape Town because I my family is here and I love the city and I like spending time here and this felt like a really good excuse to be here without like I don't have a job here um and because I'm doing these workshops full time now I may as well do them here because the alternative is doing them like in the UK in midwinter and so in the UK by the way so I live in Edinburgh in Scotland and and but spend a lot of time in London as well my partner lives in London and my kind of I grew up there I've got a lot of friends and family still there as well um but so yeah it was a it's kind of serendipitous that I have this mobile work where I can kind of transport it to Cape Town where I love being and also um to enrich it because the workshops are very interactive and I was from the from living here before and from doing workshops and doing gender-based violence-related stuff in Cape Town, I was interested into seeing how they would work in this different cultural context, especially with the kind of racial history and context of the, the place being so different to what it is in, in the UK. You're quite aware of South Africa and the Rachel. <laughs> the Rachel! Rachel prejudice! Yeah, I definitely... I, I was 
raised with a very um a very keen sense of of, of racial differences because my mum grew up in Athlone as a as a coloured person and she was born in 1954 mm. so go figure <laughs> um, time. yeah and so my whole family my whole maternal family were very like actively involved in the struggle and involved in being horribly oppressed by a racist government and interestingly my both of my grandparents were classified as as coloured by the government but my grandmother was very white passing and my grandfather was very not so that was interesting socially because they looked like an interracial couple um and my grandmother's was so light-skinned that her some of her siblings applied to get reclassified wow. as white and, and succeeded in doing so. And so my mum had this experience where some of her cousins were like on the white side of the beach and were pretending not to know them because they got the dark-skinned cousins on the other side and this, you know, like... Un- freedom. Who didn't want to experience freedom anyway? Oh, quite. Like, who, who on earth... And I'm not casting judgment on those yeah. who, who sought to be reclassified, but obviously that caused some family tension for those who you know, were left with all of the disadvantages of not being white in 1960s Cape Town. Um, and then my mum had a... She had a tumultuous relationship with her family um, in, in various various ways. Um, so she found herself living... She, like, left the family home and was living with her, her boyfriend um, at the time when she was about 19, was caught doing so. Um, and at the time, the Immorality Act stipulated that, um, what's the wording, the conjugal relations between members of different races was illegal. She was given the choice between uh, five years in prison or the confiscation of her citizenship, and she chose the latter, hence why I sound the way I do with my English accent, because she went to the UK. The older I get, the more unimaginable it is because she was 21 and she was like you know she'd never left the country she had to she was given a passport that was then cut in half so that she then married a posh rich white jewish person in the form of my father like 15 years later and i grew up in south london which is a very racially mixed area but where a bit like cape town there's a very strong correlation between how much money you have and how white you are and so we where, where in south london is it just generally that region or is can you be more specific for people who do know um <laughs> in peckham um is where i grew up and so my so for example my dad's family had a lot of money and we went to a private school where it was massively um much like well, the huge majority of the students are white at the school but in the local area um a walk to school kind of school, a boarding school. Kind no, 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 of school? like a day walk to school, okay. day school kind of walk vibe. Walk to school vibe. Where do you see that? Oh uh, yeah, no, London d- geographically very different. There are no like highways in London, um, but yeah. So I grew up with this very, um, very strong sense of not being white because of my mother, who was very visibly dark skinned and and afro-haired and also kind of emotionally 
very, you know, had very much internalised racial politics, obviously. And then to, added to that, we would come to Cape Town for summers to Athlone, where my family, my grandparents, grandfather, who was a doctor serving the local community in Athlone, and it was, you know, like, worlds apart. Yeah, I have two questions for you there, because it's just so fascinating. One, how was the take back of saying you're going to Cape Town because you know if someone says from England I'm going for a holiday in su- for summer in Cape Town you know people perceive you to be going to some beach um, lushing, luscious uh, resort or whatever yeah. and you're actually coming to Athlone and a lot of people don't know that Athlone isn't this raw fancy um, <laughs> who the hell thinks Athlone is raw well, people, <laughs> people who've never been exactly <laughs> They didn't use it. When I was a kid and I'd go to, I'd say I'm going to South Africa, people would say, oh, which country in South Africa? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, your fucking grandparents colonised South Africa. You should know about this. But no, the response is, the South Africa is known, at least amongst the people kind of I socialise with in the UK, as a place of like eye-watering racial inequality and class inequality and, this, and corruption yeah. and that it has this booming tourist industry that speaks to... The residents of Kailicha, not of it. Like, yeah. and so, so coming back to that, they think that I, they know how kind of complicated and weird it is that yeah. like my family, well, some of them don't. Some of them assume. Actually, an yeah. interesting thing is a lot of people assume that my mum's family were really poor, like really working class, um, and and culturally um, lacking in, in kind of capital as well yeah. because she wasn't white. Yeah. And so explaining, no, like my, my great-grandfather was like something like the first coloured guy to get a degree from UCT or something. And he was a headmaster. And then my grandfather was a doctor. And like crazy stories, like I went to university in Scotland, right? In Edinburgh. And my grandfather went to university in Aberdeen, which is north of Scotland. Because when he was studying at UCT, after the first year... Um, the they stopped doing theoretical stuff and were starting to do dissections and whatever on cadavers but the cadavers were the bodies of dead white people Mm. and as a non-white man he wasn't allowed to touch them so he's like well i can't finish my damn degree it's 19 like 35 and this is annoying and they were like well the curriculum is kind of the same structure as the curriculum in scotland so get on a boat spend two months on a boat and go to Aberdeen to finish your medical degree. And that's what he did. What? So God knows what an identity mindfuck that would have been for Paul as he was <sighs> travelling in the like, late 30s on this bloody boat. That and then makes me emotional back. as well. Like, I'm oh, it, yeah. <laughs> No. It's all very like complex because my, my middle-classness, both in the sense of like access to cultural trappings and books and literature and theatre and politic, political activism, um, insofar as those things are the privilege of the middle class, that is something I've inherited from both of my parents, from very different places. My dad having gone to Eton, which is like the poster school, boarding school for like the English elite, and my mum having grown up in Athlone. My mum grew up in Athlone because... 
her family, like my grandfather was born in District 6, like their family was relocated there. But some people, understandably, I think, assume that if you grew up under apartheid and you weren't white, that you couldn't also be highly educated. Yes. But I think the minutiae of just how the segregation worked mm. is understandably lost on, on people. But the racial politics, are, I find intellectually fascinating in terms of, of how they intersect with feminist politics and queer politics, but also just viscerally very confusing and uncomfortable mm-hmm. because because of those intersections. Like, I sound like this. I'm self-conscious of how I'm going to, like, sound to a Cape Tonian audience because of how British my accent is. And being white passing and whether or not by identifying as a person of colour, I'm trying to, like, claim... <laughs> claim something that's inaccurate or like claim experiences of of, of hardship. The question was because I we were talking about this before, we both have that um, relatable feeling of just being conscious of all these things because we come from two different cultures and two different mm. one being from South Africa and another one being foreign and considered something else to your partner or mother in this example. Yeah. And how that actually affects us and helps us shape who we are and who we identify with and I guess the question is does that play a huge role in who you identify yourself as? Yeah it does now more so I think I for quite a few years um, between like late teenagehood early 20s I was so focused on and I felt like my identity as a woman really consumed so much of my thinking and so much of my outlook um and my like coming into contact with and coming into understanding around um sexual politics and how that's gendered really was at the forefront but increasingly with doing these workshops and 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 being in more like anti-racist activist spaces and kind of people of color only organization I suppose it's just like growing up and maturing and my politics doing the same thing and being more um multifaceted and I think having dual cultural heritage fertile ground for that I think it's actually like our unique um can Mm. actually offer this world is that uh double-sided look at life and the empathy that we can provide no I'd I'd like to think that way that it's a good thing if we add to this world yeah no maybe it does force you to like have a a sense of insider, outsider things. Like my mum always spoke about how Cape Town was home. She wasn't at home and that she didn't understand what it was like English manners, English like society, all of the like cultural like nuances Mm -hmm. of of how to socialise, how to fit in. She felt really keenly that she didn't. Um, and but she also felt like her children were English and she wasn't going to leave them. Yeah. So she was never going to come back to South Africa, but she didn't feel comfortable where she was. I think that's another Anything. thing we can relate on then, because that's as soon as you started saying these things, I just related back to my mom. She says she's Dominican. Eh? Yeah, and she never, she always felt exactly what you just mm. said, and she's still alive today. And that it makes me just feel like I'm so blessed to think that a woman, uh, my mother didn't leave. Or just said, you know, I'm just going back to my country or yeah. back to my family because this country is so messed up. Or you know, she never gave up on us, mm. and that's just so beautiful. And I just, yeah, I love you, mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> she said, uh, um, I remember when she said, oh, if you want to understand what I've been talking about, read this book. And it was um, Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the yeah. Nigerian author. 
um, and it was about her experience of go, b- being in America. I remember Mel, my mum, being like, this <laughs> this is what I've been talking about. <laughs> she said it better than me, she's a literal writer, but here you go. Where, where to next? How long are you going to be in Cape Town for? In Cape Town till the end of this month. Okay, which is February. Yeah, February, so I flight back is on like the 25th. Okay. And then um, I'm currently in the process of organising a series in London, collaborating with an organisation called The Candid Collective, which do this kind of work. And that will be end of March, April kind of time. I'm probably going to go back to Edinburgh for a couple of weeks to see if I can do some one-off workshops. I'm really interested in doing ones that are specific to certain communities so I want to do a men's only workshop other than myself so that's a fun tension we're gonna have to address quite quickly here's a safe space for men that I'm in but like we'll see how that can happen oh, please share this information. Um, acknowledging that it isn't enough to say oh the com- so for example like in the UK at the moment the report rate for sexual violence is at, is at the highest that it's... I don't know whether it's, that it's ever been or that it's been for, like, ten years. Okay. So the, every year on year, the number of reports is going up, but the conviction rate is going down. Mm. So you've got more people saying that they've experienced sexual violence and fewer people getting convicted for perpetrating that sexual violence. And understandably and rightfully and proportionately, the sector is furious about this and is advocating and lobbying for changes in the judicial system and the policing system and the political system to, to better serve survivors by, so they argue, increasing the conviction rate. But then you go, what? so, well, yeah, it's this thing that it's a win for the feminist movement, it's the win for the anti-rape movement for somebody to rightfully be convicted of the crime that they've committed. Yeah. And according to the UK justice system, you know, if you commit a rape, these circumstances will stipulate whether you serve any time at all in prison, whether you do a custodial sentence or whether it's two years or five years and then you'll spend half of that in prison and then half of it on some kind of probation and whilst you're in prison, you're, you're going gonna... But more just what's the philosophy behind like locking someone up? Exactly. Just That's that being <laughs> quite like philosophically um, troublesome to yes. me and so it's hard to match my sense of injustice Mm. that there is no consequence for committing a sexual crime in almost every case you know like literally it's pretty much you just get away with it and and people are okay with that state of affairs like we've known for decades the levels of sexual violence that people are facing most often femmes um, and most often those femmes who are also people of colour or are also trans or are also working class or also don't have insecure immigration status. So we, we know that it's endemic and socially we sort of don't care. It's like some angry, earnest 20-somethings like ourselves who just keep squawking into the void about how this is a bad thing. And yeah, we think that the way that the, it's a victory to say, OK, this perpetrator, go be locked in a cage for three years and then come out. And that yeah. just seems so empty and so um, just so kind of so fundamentally morally warped yeah. as a as a solution to this huge endemic problem that the work on transformative justice and on community based healing and on going perpetrators of violence are not monsters who should be quarantined out of the community for yeah. perpetrating violence they need to be embraced as human beings yeah, who have caused change. harm and then they need to 
there to be investment in changing their course of behaviour. It's like this much more pragmatic human approach than yeah. just saying, I'll just put them in a box for a bit to, so they can think about what they did. Why is it that we need one, like more poster girls of yeah. misogyny and of, mm-hmm. of horrifying violence and victimhood? Re- correlation between how likely you are to commit a crime like that and your gender is just too much to ignore. It's like the yeah. overwhelming majority of, of violent sexual crimes committed to strangers are perpetrated by men. Mm. Yeah. And it's like, it's just too lazy and too scientifically unfounded to suggest that's because they've got too much testosterone rolling around and that they just can't contain themselves. No. It's like, it's, this, there's so much more going on into just like plopping police officers on the corners near Shabins. It's just like not not enough yeah i just i'm ah. like wanting to hit my head as you said that's because i have yeah. so much anger now i want to stand up and no. just you know but that's the thing i find myself constantly i'm somewhere on the wheel of like getting getting myself into a, myself like het up in like a frothy rage about yeah. the injustice and this like limp flaccid useless response from authority figures of different forms be it the justice system so-called justice system so-called policing system so-called political system like there's just there's never been a response to sexual violence that isn't just pathetic and then you get into the like apathy stage where you're like oh god there's nothing to be done Mm. i'm just gonna like eat some more cook sisters and like hope this goes away and then you're like no no maybe if you do some like grassroots prevention work you can just like chip away chip away and then you're like no look at what you have to chip away against it's too big it's too big and then you go around again it's like like, constant wheel (laughs) it is actually and now we we just need to um change the topic what you're planning to do in Cape Town for the next few weeks like what are you going to do what's your favourite part of Cape Town I mean it's it's such a beautiful city isn't it just I'm so I'm so blown away by it as we sit here and look over the view of a pretty view um, what is this? On my right, I see Dale Mandin, and in front of me, I see Bloberg. So, my favourite part of Cape Town, it depends on, on what I'm after. So, I, I'm pretty good at cold water swimming, but sometimes... <laughs> sometimes it's a bit much over on the, like, Clifton, <laughs> Landadno, Camps Bay side of town. It's People go there to town. They're not going there to swim. <laughs> but I think... I was on Camps Bay the other day, and it was honestly... The most, I was like, I'm never coming here again. I was like, this is, I was listening, I'm listening to either unbearably obnoxious Americans or European, like Brits or white South Africans being rude to Malawian and Zimbabwean guys selling crap paintings. And it was just shit, I hate it. So I... Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I say after about two hours of swearing. So I'd say like a good, I'd recommended day out would be going to Cork Bay and swimming in the rock pool until you need a coffee and then going to Olympia Bakery and getting a pecan tart, a little pecan tart and a coffee and then going back and swimming about or going for a walk up to Simon's Town and back again and then when you're hungry again going to Lucky Fish and having snook and chips. And Do you then do you need a... All I've done at this point is have a coffee and lie on a beach and have some fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> Even I, in my freelance life, can manage that. Yes. Just about. 
come to Kent. Uh, it's, a, it's highly recommended. A lot of families do this on Sundays. You know, this, this is like a prime the beach day. Sunday yeah. activity. That's why it's That's so why you cool. don't go on Sunday because everyone no. else is there. Don't. Being loud. Or go to Bibby's in Weinberg. And or then food. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, yeah, it's just like my favourite. The best coexisters in the, in the country. I put, I'm putting it out there. Wow. You are going against so many women that sell their souls to make these sisters. I'm Every sure they're week. delicious, but the women in Bibby's know what is what. I swear to God. They call me Miss England. I just have mixed feelings about it, but I was like, fair enough. I sound like this. And they go, hello, Mrs. England. Do you want your, you want your Shahi and Cook Sisters? People Bibby's Kitchen in Weinberg. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for coming on this episode. And My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, so get in touch. Contact at RuthElliot.com. Mm-hmm. That's one L and one T in Elliot, or just RuthElliot.com to see more info on my website about me and the work that I do and about how to come along to a workshop. Yeah. I'd love to see you there. Sweet. Sweet. Ruth and I just want to make this a space for conversation and uh, education. So if you find the information to be triggering, please feel free to reach out or contact Helpline Services, which I will link in the description below. Well, there you have it. A beautiful relationship that started over relatable content. I will make sure to include all the show notes on my website, rahanasadguru.com, where you can check it out. If you stuck around until the end, comment your favorite heart emoji or let us know what you thought about the episode. You can also give me some love by rating this episode, reviewing, subscribing, or sharing relatable content. Lastly, thank you to Ruth for sponsoring this episode over Patreon. If you would like to collaborate, be featured, or help me create more relatable content, you can visit my account, visit patreon.com forward slash relatable content.